Well, good evening. How many of you had a good potluck? How many of you uh, want to do lay activities? <laughs> if your neighbor is uh, falling asleep in the presentation, I give you full rights to use your elbow in a gentle way and remind them that we're studying the word. Amen? Amen? Now, I get the uh, fortunate opportunity of pacing back and forth, so that keeps me awake. Um, but I know that after a nice Sabbath afternoon and a meal, uh, sometimes it can be kind of hard to keep the focus. But um, as Carlos already mentioned, we do have kind of a, an intense subject that we're going to look at this evening. I just recently put together this presentation on the experience of God's prophetic movement <clears throat> and I've been sharing it with uh, different folks at the Bible Prophecy Seminars uh, where I've been working, and it seems to have been a, a real blessing. So I thought I'd share it with you folks out here as well. But before we uh, uh, delve into the study of God's Word, <clears throat> I thought I would just briefly share with you another testimony from the field uh, in evangelism. We, uh, we do six seminars a year. Um, we do three at the beginning, and then we have a break in the summer, and then we do three in the uh, fall, and then we have a break in the winter. And uh, this past year, uh, there's just been, there has been a tremendous amount of blessings that have happened from meeting to meeting. We started our first meeting this year in Jamestown, North Dakota in January. And um, if you want a little piece of advice, don't go to Jamestown, North Dakota in January. And I won't charge you for that piece of advice. Um, I never experienced 30, minus 35 wind chill before. Uh, I felt like my face was going to split in half as I was driving to the meetings in the evening. It's just so cold outside. It's just, I mean, we were there for a couple of weeks before we even seen the pavement on the roads. It was just covered in snow. And uh, anyways, but God had some blessings in store, as you can only imagine. Second night of the meetings, there is an elderly gentleman who came in on his motorized scooter. His name was um, Paul, and uh, when we moved to the church, Paul actually drove his scooter in the snow from his house to the church every night, um, but, you know, he had diabetes and couldn't feel anything in his legs, so it didn't really bother him that much, <laughs> but uh, second night of the meetings, Paul came for the first time. And uh, as he came in, I mean, I could just tell he was a giant of a man. You know, he was sitting in his motorized wheelchair, but he was a giant of a man. And when he got out of his motorized uh, wheelchair and sat down, and he kind of stood up for a minute, and then he sat down. He was six foot six, tall guy, huge man. And uh, after the meetings that night, I stopped by Paul and, and said hello to him. And he jokingly said, he was kind of one of these sarcastic guys that liked to joke with you every now and then, but was well-meaning. He said, you didn't tell me anything that I didn't already know tonight. And I said, well, that's good. You know, in some ways, that's a good thing. You know that they've been studying the Bible. Uh, Paul came to most every night. There were a few nights that he missed because of his health and because of the weather as well. Um, but somewhere in the course of the meetings, Paul made the decision that he wanted to be baptized. And so the pastor and I naturally wanted to visit with him and find out, you know, what he knew and, and just kind of talk to him about this decision. And uh, we went out to eat with him at, uh, for a breakfast in the morning. And we sat in this little breakfast parlor, the three of us, and we were sitting there eating. And I said, Paul, why don't you tell me about your background? What's, what's your experience? How did you come to know the Lord? 
And he told me he was born in Alabama, and sometime in his early 20s, he uh, left his home and got caught up with the wrong crowd, and shortly after that, he began to ride with the Hells Angels. He rode with the Hells Angels for 14 years and uh, did various acts of crime and lawlessness. I mean, the things that he told us are just not worth repeating. It was just that bad. Um, when he stopped riding with the Hells Angels, and that's a whole story in and of itself, how he got out of that experience of riding with them, uh, he, he told us that he still lived a life of crime, selling firearms to the mafia and various other people and uh, pimping women out and just, just a very, very rough lifestyle. And I thought, well, this is going to be an interesting story to hear how he gave his heart to the Lord. And this is what happened. He was driving to, through North Dakota on his Harley Davidson, big Harley Davidson bike, the biggest bike you can get. And he was riding through North Dakota. And uh, as he was riding through, he stopped in Jamestown for some reason. And uh, when he stopped in Jamestown, he stopped at a light in the city and he put his legs out to stabilize himself. And because of his diabetes and neuropathy, uh, he was unable to hold the bike up any longer and he fell over. Uh, they went to the hospital and the doctor told him, you won't be able to ride a bike any longer. And so that's how he came to Jamestown, North Dakota. And uh, shortly after this experience, he checked himself into a hotel, sold his Harley Davidson, and was at a loss of what he was going to do in his life. And while he was there in that, uh, in that hotel room, he opened up his bedside stand, the little thing next to his bed, and he opened it up, and there was a Gideon Bible. How many of you are thankful for Gideon Bibles? I mean, the story will only be told of how many people were led to the Lord by the Gideon Bibles. Uh, so he opens this uh, Gideon Bible up, and there in the stillness of his hotel room, reading chapter after chapter after chapter, this man who rode with the Hell's Angels for 14 years, lived a life of crime, drug abuse, all kinds of terrible, I mean, it, it just amazing the darkness that this man came out of. There in the stillness of his hotel room, no family around, no friends around, no preacher around to lead him into the truth, Paul read about Jesus and gave his heart to the Lord the best he knew how. As he was reading the Bible, in his, I mean, he wasn't a very educated man. As he read the Bible, he read, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord. Okay, that must mean that God wants us to keep the seventh day of the week holy. You know, it just amazes me that God has made the Bible so simple. And so he got the yellow pages out, and he began to phone all the churches in town. And he asked them, Do you keep the Sabbath? Now, I don't know about you, but if I were a preacher, I would find that pretty intimidating. Some guy that rode with the Hells Angels for 14 years, six foot six, over 200 pounds, do you keep the Sabbath? No, why? You know? <laughs> and uh, so he went through this whole list of churches, and, and was, none of these ministers would keep me in the Sabbath. And then he found this church called the Seventh Day Adventist Church. Oh, well, that's interesting. He picked up the phone, called the guy, it was a pastor I was working with. He said, Do you keep the Sabbath? He says, Sure, I do. And he said, well, that's great. And so they began to study the Bible together. This was shortly before the meetings began. Uh, the pastor met Paul, and they were studying the Bible together. And that's how Paul got this connection to the church, was through this phoning of all these churches, trying to find a church that keeps the Seventh-day Sabbath. And, you know, there's just, there are people out there, reminds me of that quote in the Spirit of Prophecy, that there are many on the verge of the kingdom waiting only to be gathered in. So Paul came night after night. At the end of the meetings, he made the decision he wanted to get baptized. And then finally, he added more information to what he had already found out in his own personal study, and he decided he wanted to become part of God's prophetic movement and uh, become part of the local Seventh-day Adventist church. Well, as you can imagine, six foot six, over 200 pounds, we were wondering, how in the world are we going to baptize this guy? 
He was adamant, I want to be baptized, preacher. So we, we worked it all out, and we got the, came to the Sabbath day, and uh, we had a strong, brave deacon and the pastor who uh, lifted Paul up and carried him up the stairs and carried him down the, uh, into the baptistry, and there the pastor pronounced the uh, baptism service. I, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and I remember seeing Paul go down into the water along with the deacon. <laughs> <laughs> Deacon got rebaptized. <laughs> they both went down into the water, and Paul came up a changed man. Amen. And you know, there wasn't a lot of people that got baptized in that small little meeting. We only started out with 12 guests. But I know that God had me go to Jamestown, North Dakota for Paul. Amen. He may not live very much longer. I mean, he, his health is just terrible, but he gave his life to Jesus. And he, you know, he said something to me that I thought was just very profound. Very simply, he put it to me this way. He said, Jason... I suffer with my health, but I don't blame that on God. It's my own fault. And I thought, you know, wow, what a depth of insight this man had in his relationship with God. So just another story from the field. I mean, I could tell you story after story after story. I mean, it's just been so great this past year of how God has blessed uh, in evangelism. And I encourage you, if you're not involved in evangelism, uh, Try it out sometime. It's great. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be an evangelist. You just, just share the Word of God with people that God brings uh, across your path. It's just a tremendous blessing to share God's Word with other people. Well, let's go ahead and get started. We've got a lot of groundwork to cover here in our study tonight. And uh, before we begin this evening, I'd like to start again with a word of prayer. So if you wouldn't mind just bowing your heads with me again as we come to the throne of God, seeking blessings from Him. Father in heaven, we are indebted to you for all of the wonderful truth that you have given to us in your word. And tonight, Father, as we turn our attention to the book of Revelation and prophecies that were given to us many thousands of years ago, Father, I ask that you will guide our minds, guide our thoughts, that you will guide my tongue, and that you will guide my thoughts. And that, Father, we will be edified as we hear your word tonight. Thank you, Father, for calling us to be your distinctive people in the last days. May you help us, Lord, I pray to this end. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Tonight we're going to look at Revelation chapter 10. And perhaps many of you have already studied Revelation chapter 10. Um, but tonight, if you haven't studied Revelation 10, uh, you are missing out on a very incredible chapter in the Bible. And I want to share that with you uh, for our study this evening. Uh, but as you look at Revelation, Revelation, as you already know, is a fascinating book. And in the book of Revelation, you will find a lot of descriptions in the book of Revelation of God's people in the last days. In Revelation chapter 14 you will find the message of God's people in the last days. You've got the three angels' messages there, which pretty much comprises most of what we share in a Bible prophecy seminar. We pretty much go through the three angels' message point by point by point by point. So in Revelation chapter 14, you find the message of God's people in the last days. What message God's people would proclaim and what message God's people would believe in in the last days. And then you have Revelation chapter 12, where you find the characteristics of God's people. The Bible talks about that keeping the commandments of God, having the testimony of Jesus Christ, the experience of God's people in the wilderness, and so on. You find the characteristics there of God's people in Revelation chapter 12. And then in Revelation chapter 10, you find the experience of God's people 
what God's people would go through in the last days. And that's where we're going to focus our attention tonight. We're going to look at the experience of God's people in Revelation chapter 10. Now, if you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and open it up to Revelation chapter 10. And we're going to just go ahead and read the chapter through so we can get familiar with it. And then we're going to try to go through it point by point. Now, understand that as we look at Revelation chapter 10, it would be impossible for me to hit every single detail. So I'm going to try to hit as many of the highlights that I feel are pertinent to the understanding of that chapter, and then we're going to, we're going to end with a pretty good application. So Revelation chapter 10, if you want to go ahead and turn with me there in your Bibles, we're going to read it from our Bibles tonight. Revelation chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 1. Revelation 10 and verse 1, the Bible says this, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was, as it were, the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had, on his, uh, had in his hand a little book opened, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot upon the earth. And cried with a loud voice when a lion roareth, and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and he said, uh, or sorry, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created the heavens and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the, uh, and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets." And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, now this is the, the focus of this chapter is right here. Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, and it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey." And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, it made my belly bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So just a little quick rundown there of Revelation chapter 10. Let's just review what we have seen in this chapter. Revelation chapter 10, quick, 10, quick overview here. We have an angel that comes down from heaven to earth. He has a little book in his hand that is what? Open, which denotes that at one point it was what? Closed, that's right. So he has a little book that is open in his hand. Uh, he has one foot on the sea, one foot on the earth. He cries with a loud voice as when a lion roareth, and then there are seven thunders that are uttered. And then we find uh, he has, uh, then he swears by him that liveth forever and ever, that there should be time no longer. And then he gives John the little book and he tells him to eat it. John eats the little book, it's sweet in his mouth, and then it makes his belly bitter, the Bible tells us. And then we find that after this bitter experience, John is told that he must what? 
prophesy, prophesy again, the Bible says. And then there in verse 7, we find this uh, point that I put down at the end, where the Bible says the mystery of God should be finished. Now, the reason why I put it down at the end is because the Bible says in the time when the seventh angel begins to sound, then the mystery of God would be finished. So that should be at the end, uh, but it happens to come right in the middle of that chapter. So just a quick overview of what we see in Revelation chapter 10. Now what we're going to do is we're going to try to go through this point by point and look at the highlights of this chapter and see what we find out. So let's begin at the beginning here. Revelation chapter 10 and verse 1, the Bible says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and he had a rainbow upon his head, and his, feet, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot on the earth. And he cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roareth, and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, the obvious question is, who is this angel in Revelation chapter 10? Who is this angel in Revelation chapter 10? Now, there are a few options that we have here, but let me share with you what I believe the angel of Revelation 10 is. So, let's just look at some characteristics here. The Bible tells us that his face is as the what? Sun. Then the Bible tells us his feet are as what? Pillars of fire. And then the Bible tells us that his voice is like a what? Lion, when a lion roareth. Now, I find it very interesting that you will find the same characteristics or the same description in Revelation of the angel here in Revelation chapter 10, you will find the same description given to none other than Jesus in the book of Revelation. And so we find that evidence in Revelation chapter 1 verse 16. The Bible talks about his face being like the sun. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 15, his feet as pillars of fire. And Revelation chapter 5, we find uh, there the Bible identifying Jesus as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And then we find an inspiration. This is from uh, the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, volume uh, 7a, page 971. The servant of the Lord says, the mighty angel who instructed John was no less a personage than Jesus Christ. So we find that this angel in Revelation 10 is none other than Jesus. Now, whenever you make that statement, somebody then would sometimes come to the conclusion that you are saying that Jesus was a created being. But when you look at the Greek word here for the word angel, it simply means, it's the Greek word angelos, which means messenger. So it's not referring to an actual winged cherub uh, as much as it's referring to an actual messenger that is proclaiming a message. And we find in Revelation chapter 10 that this angel does have a message that he is wanting to proclaim to his people. And you find the same thing in Revelation chapter 3. It's not, or sorry, Revelation 4. It's not three literal angels that are uh, flying in the midst of heaven, but they are messengers, which would be you and I. At least I hope we are the messengers that are bearing the three angels' message. Amen? So we have this angel here in Revelation 10, which is none other than Jesus. And we go on and we look at this again in verse 2. And it says, And he had a little book that is open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. So the question is this, what is the book in the angel's hand? Now, I know a lot of you uh, may already know the answers to many of these questions, but let's just review this again and uh, find the answers from the Word of God. Now, there are three options that you have for this book. Well, they're actually not three viable options, but they are three views that people have 
uh, for the little book in Revelation chapter 10. Some think that this little book that is open is the seven seals because at one point it was closed, now it is open. But we know that from scripture, the Bible tells us that no man in Revelation chapter 5 was able to even look upon those seven seals, let alone the Bible tells us later on that John is told to eat this book. So we know that this couldn't possibly be the case because Jesus is the only one in Revelation chapter 5 that was worthy to open that book. Are you all with me? Okay, so John was the only one that was worthy to open that book. So it couldn't be, or sorry, Jesus was the only one that was worthy to open that book. So it couldn't be the seven seals. The other option that people have, or the other preference that people have is the book of Revelation, that it's the book of Revelation that was closed, but now it is uh, open. But that couldn't possibly be the case either, because in Revelation chapter 10, John hadn't even finished writing the book of Revelation yet, so it couldn't be the book of Revelation. So again, that's not a very viable option if we want to stay true to the Bible. The third option is what we find in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4, where we find God instructing Daniel to do what to the book? to seal the book. And there, here it is in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4. The Bible says this, But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase, the Bible says. So Daniel was to told to shut up this book until a certain time. Until what time? Until the time of the end. Now, let's take a look at this and find out from the Bible, when is this time of the end that Daniel's book was supposed to be sealed till? Uh, and I'm going to invite you to go with me to uh, this passage in, in uh, the book of Daniel. So if you want to pick up your Bibles and go with me to Daniel chapter 12. Uh, Daniel chapter 12, and we're going to begin in verse 5, where we find the answer to the question, when is Daniel's book Unsealed. Daniel chapter 12, and we're going to begin in verse 5. The Bible says this. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood another two, uh, the one on this side of the bank of the river, and the other on that side of the bank of the river. And the one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, he said, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Now, this is in the context of verse 4 there, where it talks about the shutting up of the book to the time of the end. How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? Verse 7, it says, And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he, had, uh, when he uh, held up his right hand uh, and his left hand unto the heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever, that there should be time, or sorry, that it shall be for a time, times and half, uh, and when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. So the question is asked, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And the answer that is given is that it's till a time, times, and a half. Now, those of you that study Bible prophecy, the time, times, and the dividing of times is none other than the what? 1260 years. That's right. So the angel tells Daniel to seal his book. Then in verse, uh, verse uh, 5 and 6, the question is asked, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And then in verse 7, the answer is, until a time, times, and a half a time. So at the end of the 1260 years, the time, times, and the dividing of times, then we would find this book of Daniel being unsealed and open. But until that time, 
Daniel's little book was to be sealed until the close, or coming to the end of the 1,260 years in 1798. Now, let's go back and look at some comparisons here just briefly between Revelation chapter 10 and Daniel chapter 12 because the two of them just, they go together like a hand in a glove. When you look at these two chapters, it's just amazing the parallels that you find between these two chapters in the Bible. So here we find, uh, we're going to look at Daniel 12 on this side and then Revelation 10 over here. So in Daniel chapter 12, there's a sealed book. In Revelation chapter 10, you have also a book that's opened. In Daniel chapter 12, there is one man that, uh, that's on the land and one man that's on the sea. Revelation chapter 10, there's one man that has his foot on the earth and then also on the sea. In Revela or Daniel chapter 12, there's this man that swears by him that liveth forever. And you find the same thing in Revelation chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. There's also one that swears by him that liveth forever. And then in verse 7, all these things shall be finished. In Daniel chapter 12, Revelation chapter 10, the Bible talks about how the mystery of God would be finished. So you have something finishing in both of these chapters. So Daniel chapter 12, Revelation chapter 10 really go together very closely. When you're trying to understand uh, uh, Revelation chapter 10, you really got to have an understanding of what's going on in some of these passages in uh, Daniel chapter 12. Now, the obvious question is this. When the Bible says that Daniel's book is sealed until the time of the end, or the end of the 1260 years, the question then is, what part of Daniel's book was sealed? And the reason why I ask that question is because it's obvious that it's not the entire book of Daniel. Why is it obvious? Because the portions of Daniel dealing with history, Daniel chapter 2, uh, Daniel chapter uh, 4 and 5 and 6, the period of the uh, Babylonian reign and also the Medo-Persian reign, that was understood, that's been understood for thousands of years. Uh, even parts, uh, large parts of Daniel chapter 7 were understood uh, prior to 1798, and even parts of Daniel chapter 8 and 9 were understood prior to 1798 as well. In fact, you find in the Gospels where Jesus talks about how time has been, or how prophecy has been fulfilled in reference to himself having just been anointed by John the Baptist and fulfilling part of the 70-week prophecy. So there were portions of Daniel that were understood before 1798. So when the Bible says that he was to seal his book until the time of the end, we know that that's not referring to the entire book because there are portions of the book that were understood prior to that time. So what part of Daniel was to be sealed until the time of the end? Daniel chapter 8 and verse 26, the Bible says, And the vision of the evening and the morning, which was told, is true. Wherefore, shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. So the Bible tells us that Daniel is told to do what to this vision? vision? Shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. Now, we know that this evening and morning vision in Daniel chapter 8 is referring to none other than the prophecy of the 2,000 300-day prophecy. That's right. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, where the Bible says, Under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. There it is on the screen. Under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So Daniel is told to shut up that vision of the evening and mornings, for it shall be for many days. So when the Bible says that Daniel is told to shut up the book and to seal it until the time of the end, it is making reference to none other than the part of Daniel 
that is making reference to the 2,300 days or the time of judgment that would begin at the end of that time prophecy. And we go over this in our Bible Prophecy Seminar, how at the end of the 2,300 days, the time of judgment began to take place with the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary that happened uh, at the end of this time prophecy. So the portion of Daniel that is sealed until the time of the end is not the entire book, but the part of Daniel that is dealing with the investigative judgment that would happen in the year 1844. Now let's go back to Daniel cha or Revelation chapter 10 here and look at verses 3 and 4 and just kind of continue reading through uh, this chapter. It says this, And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth, and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. Now here's what we do know about the seven thunders. John doesn't give us very much information, but we do know this. The seven thunders are events or something that would transpire after 1798, after the opening of Daniel's little book, uh, between 1798 and 1844, when John is told that he must prophesy again. So they are events that would transpire between these two periods, between 1798 and 1844. Now, I personally am appreciative of the extra information that we get from the spirit of prophecy. Amen? And uh, God's servant kind of uh, comments on this and gives us a little bit more information here. Uh, in the SDA Bible commentary, she says this. The special light given to John, which was expressed in the seven thunders, was a delineation of events which should transpire under the first and second angel's messages. It was not best for the people to know these things, uh, for their faith must necessarily be what? Test it, the Bible says, and we find that testing taking place, or not the Bible, but Spirit of Prophecy says, we find that testing taking place later on in the chapter. So she says it's a delineation of the second and third angel's message that would take place uh, from 1798 to the year 1844. So having said that, I don't really want to spend much time on the th seven thunders because that's not the point of the chapter here. But just to give you a little bit more information on it, uh, there uh, are a few points that I just shared with you. Revelation 10, 5 and 6, the Bible goes on and it says, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever. Uh, who created the heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be what? Time no longer, the Bible says. So here we find the, this man standing up, this angel, uh, messenger, Jesus standing up and making an oath, which is uh, the Greek word there for swearing. He's making an oath by him that liveth forever and ever, who created all of these things, the heavens, the earth, and the sea, which should remind us of another passage in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. And we know that that's making direct reference back, in fact, a quote, uh, right back to the fourth commandment with the seventh day Sabbath. So we find this oath that is being made by him that liveth forever and ever, that there should be time no longer. Now, this phrase, time no longer, oftentimes people understand that to mean that this would be the end of the world. There would be time no longer, so that would be the end of the world. But we know from Scripture that this couldn't possibly be the case 
for two reasons. The first reason that it's not refer referencing the end of the world is this. Revelation chapter 10 is taking place between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. Now, when you look at the seventh trumpet, that's where the Bible says that the kingdoms of this earth have become the kingdoms of our God, when there's this trans, uh, translation from earthly kingdoms to heavenly kingdoms. And this, that there should be time no longer, is taking place prior to the seventh trumpet in between the sixth and the seventh. So it couldn't be referencing the end of the world there because it's happening before the seventh trumpet takes place. The second reason why we know it's not the end of the world is because John, in verse 11 of Revelation chapter 10, is told that he must what? He has to prophesy again. So what use would there be to prophesy again if the world had already come to an end? Are you all with me tonight? Sure, that doesn't make any sense. So it's not referencing the end of the world when it says that there should be time no longer, but it's referring to time prophecies, that there would be time prophecies no longer. In fact, we find this an in inspiration here again from the 7a Bible commentary. This time which the angel declares with a solemn oath is not the end of this world's history, neither of probationary time, but of what? prophetic time. So when he says that there would be time no longer, that's not the end of the world, but it's making reference to there being no more time prophecies that would take place at the end of, or, or in the midst of this chapter of Revelation chapter 10. And we know from our study of Bible prophecy that there are no prophecies in Daniel and Revelation that extend beyond, time prophecies that extend beyond 1844 and the end of the 2300 day prophecy. And that's made very clear here in Revelation chapter 10 and also in uh, the 7a Bible commentary. Now let's go on in Revelation 10, verse 7. Uh, I'm just pushing through the first part of this chapter very quickly here because I want to get to the last part of it, which is the uh, important stuff in my mind. Verse 7 says this, uh, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. Now again, this is happening right before the seventh trumpet begins to take place. This mystery of God, the Bible says, is going to be finished uh, as the seventh angel begins to sound. So the question is, what is this mystery of God? Romans chapter 8, verse 25 and 26, is, or sorry, Romans 16, verses 25 and 26, is probably the clearest passage that I've been able to find to describe what the mystery of God is. And you can delve into this a little bit more in your own personal time. But the Bible says this, now to him who is able to strengthen you, now this is Paul talking here, according to my gospel and to the preaching of what? Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret for long ages. So Paul is talking about here this preaching of, the, of his gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ, and the revealing of this mystery, which was kept secret for long ages. And he goes on, but is now what? Disclosed. So it was a mystery, but now Paul says it has been disclosed through the prophetic writings and is made known to how many nations? All nations according to the commandment of the eternal God to bring about obedience of faith. Now, when I look at the Bible, in my understanding, and you can correct me later if I'm wrong, but in my limited understanding of the Bible, I find that there's one thing in the Bible that is repeated over and over again that must go to all the world. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, the Bible says, This gospel must go to all the world, and then the end shall come. Revelation chapter 14, the three angels' message, the Bible says, it must go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. 
So this mystery of God that is now disclosed is to be made known to all nations, to all people. This mystery of God that is disclosed to all people is none other than the gospel that would be finished in its proclamation right before the seventh uh, angel, right before he begins to sound and the world comes to an end. The gospel of God would then be fulfilled in its proclamation before the world comes to the end in the seventh uh, angel or the seventh trumpet rather. Uh, Now we go on in Revelation chapter 10. In verses 8 through 10, and this is where things get interesting. I'm going to kind of slow down here and uh, try to understand this portion because we want to spend our time here. Revelation 10, 8 through 10, the Bible says this. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth, what? Sweet as honey. And the Bible says, And I took the little book out of the angel's hand, and it ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, it made my belly bitter. So so John has a sweet and bitter experience here as he eats this little book. Book. Now, we already understand what the little book is. The little book is a part of Daniel that is dealing with the 2,300-day prophecy, the time of judgment that we begin at the close of this prophecy in the year 1844. So this is the eating of this little book that was sealed until the end of the time times and the dividing of times. Now, there's a brother passage to this one. Um, that is found in the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, where we find some, something very similar happening to Ezekiel that took place to John here in Revelation chapter 10. Let me read this passage to you tonight. The Bible says this, Moreover he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou finest, eat this roll. Now he's not talking about Christmas rolls, he's talking about a scroll there. So he says, eat this roll and go and speak unto the house of Israel. So when he ate the roll, what, is, what was he supposed to do? Speak unto the house of Israel. That's right. And go speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that roll. And he said unto me, son of man, cause thy belly to eat it and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give to thee. Then did I eat it and it was in my mouth as what? Honey, he says, for sweetness. And he said unto me, Son of man, go get thee up unto the house of Israel and speak with my, what? Words unto them. So here we find a very similar experience in Ezekiel that took place with John in Revelation chapter 10. John was told to eat a book and in his mouth it was sweet. Later on it became bitter. Ezekiel is told to do the same thing. He eats this book. It's sweet to him as he eats it. But once he eats this roll, then he is told that he must go speak unto the house of Israel. You know, when somebody reads a book, I mean, they read it from cover to cover in 24 hours. Sometimes you might say that they did what to that book. They devoured it. And so here we find that Ezekiel is devouring this word, this scroll, and then he goes and he proclaims it to the house of Israel. And it's very interesting that the same thing happens with John in Revelation chapter 10. He eats the book. It's sweet in his mouth. It's bitter in his belly. And then in verse 11, the Bible tells us that God tells John to go and prophesy again. 
So the eating of that little book is a gaining of a knowledge that is found in that book, such as with Ezekiel, when he ate his roll, he was gaining the knowledge of the words that were there, and he went and proclaimed it to the house of Israel. Are we all still together so far? Yes or no? All right, so here we find a similar situation going on here between John and Ezekiel in this eating of the roll. Now, let's go back here and just kind of summarize what we've seen at this point. The experience of eating Daniel's little book was sweet at first, but then it became bitter after it was eaten. So let's just summarize here what we've seen so far. Uh, the eating of the book is an gaining of an understanding and then proclaiming the word of God or what's in that book. That's the eating of the book. Then the little book is the part of Daniel that is dealing with the judgment that begins in the year 1844, that portion of Daniel that was sealed. Then we find that it's sweet at first. It's a joyful experience to understand that book. You know, David talks about how sweet thy words are. It was a joyful experience at first to understand what was written in this little book, but then Later on, obviously, it became bitter. Uh, when the fuller understanding uh, came, uh, it led to a bitter experience. So at first, it was joyful, but then later on, it was a sorrowful experience. Now, most of you already know where I'm going with all of this, but I find it very interesting how accurate this Bible prophecy is to the experience of God's people that have now been formula uh, have uh, organized themselves into over 15 million members strong on a worldwide basis. The prophecy is so accurate in its depiction of God's people in the last days. So let's look at this sweet experience. Let's just kind of touch on that at first, at, uh, at first here. The sweet experience, we find many people that were studying uh, the portion of Daniel dealing with the 2,300 days uh, just after 1798. In fact, it's very interesting. If you look at your Bible commentaries, you look at, you know, different authors of Bible prophecy and things like that, you will not find much. In fact, my hunch is that you probably won't find anything pretty much definitively written uh, when it comes to the 2,300-day prophecy prior to 1798. Why? Because the angel told Daniel that that part of the book was to be what? Closed. It was supposed to be sealed until the time of the end. So prior to 1798, you don't find much study of Daniel chapter 8 and 9. But it's very interesting that as soon as 1798 takes place, you find an explosion of interest in that portion of Daniel. I mean, there are people all over the world that begin to study that portion of Daniel dealing with the time of judgment. You have in the United States, William Miller, a Baptist minister. In England, you have Edward Irving. In Germany, uh, Johann Bengel. In South America, you have a Jesuit priest, Manuel de Lacunza, who studied Daniel chapter 8 and 9, 2,300 days. In Sweden, in Denmark, in Norway, children were preaching about the second advent of Christ in Asia. You had Dr. Joseph Wolf, And many of these people came to the conclusion that the 2,300 days was going to end somewhere around the time period of the 1840s. And many of them Here's the interesting thing to me. Many of them actually didn't even know each other. This was just from their own personal Bible study. As they looked at Daniel chapter 8 and 9 and started to put things together, they were coming to the conclusion that this was going to end not too far in the future. Why? Because now Daniel's little book had been opened. All right, so this is the sweet experience. And, and listen to this. This, this is just this is an amazing quote right here. This is from C. Mervyn Maxwell's book, Tell It to the World. He says this, Hearts were filled with joy and holy excitement as thousands took their stand for Jesus. Through the pre preaching of one of the Advent preachers, William Miller, the Methodist Church gained 40,000 new members and the Baptists 45. 
You find that amazing? You know, I'm an evangelist, so I mean, when when I read that, I think to myself, man, 40,000, I mean, that's 85,000 people that joined these different churches just from the preaching of one man. I mean, if I got 85,000 people to join the church, I would be retiring. I mean, just it's amazing that the, the, the enthusiasm that William Miller had and the excitement that people had about the second advent of Jesus. It was such a joyful experience. Thousands of people were taking their stand because they believed that in the year 1844 that something spectacular was going to take place. And I've been there. I've been at William Miller's farm and stood there on Ascension Rock where they stood there waiting for the coming of Jesus. They believed that he was going to come. It was a joyful experience as they studied Daniel chapter 8. But unfortunately, they had a misapplication of that prophecy. Here's another quote. This is from a Newburyport shop owner. He said this, Believing as I most sincerely do, that the Lord Jesus Christ will in a few days come in the clouds of heaven, I retire from this shop as I am determined that, uh, being, uh, that God being my helper, that my works shall correspond with my faith. Now that goes along with what we were talking about this morning, didn't it? And you're like, listen, if I believe that Jesus is going to come back, what's the sense in keeping a shop open? So he closed the shop up because he believed Jesus was going to be coming. Here's another one. This is from the Providence Journal uh, on the front page. It says this, if I owe anybody any money as a result of my business dealings, and if I've not been faithful in paying it, please let me know so, that, so I can pay my debts because Jesus is coming on October 22, 1844, and I want to ascend in the clouds to go with them. Were they excited about Jesus' coming? They sure were, man. It was, it, was, it was electric in the air. They were so excited. Jesus was going to come in the year 1844. Now, we understand that one of the reasons why there was this disappointment is because they had a misunderstanding of Bible prophecy. They had this common understanding or this common belief that the earth was the sanctuary and that the cleansing of the sanctuary in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14 would be the cleansing of the earth. And they equated that with the end of the world, the cleansing of the earth by fire that takes place with the event of the second coming. And so based on that popular understanding, which was not according to scripture, they used that according, uh, in, in connection with all the other information that they had in Daniel chapter 8, and they put it all together and said, Jesus is going to come and cleanse the earth with fire in the year 1844 and take us home. Now, obviously, we know that there was a bitter disappointment uh, when Jesus did not come. There was a bitter experience when Jesus did not uh, come in the clouds of heaven. And here's just a few quotes. This is from Hiram Edson. He says this, Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted, and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I never experienced before. It seemed that the loss of all earthly friends could have been no comparison. We wept and wept till the day dawned. Were they bitterly disappointed? Oh, man, what a terrible experience. This is another one here from uh, Henry Emmons. He says this, I waited all Tuesday, October 22, and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all forenoon of Wednesday, but after 12 o'clock, I began to feel faint. My natural strength was leaving me uh, uh, very fast, and I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, sick with disappointment. 
What a bitter experience that these people went through as they expected Jesus to come on October 22, as they stood there on Ascension Rock, as they sat in their homes waiting for the sound of that trumpet, announcing the coming of Jesus Christ and the end of this world. And then when the clock struck over midnight to the next day, that disappointment began to sink in when they realized Jesus was not going to come. What a terrible experience unfortunately, that God prophesied would take place. What a bitter disappointment these people went through. But listen to this. This is just, this is an amazing quote right here. This is from Ellen White, Christian Experiences and Teachings, page 54. She says this, It was a bitter disappointment that fell upon the little flock whose faith had been so strong and whose hope had been so high. But we were surprised that we felt so free in the Lord and were so strongly sustained by his strength and grace. Yes, they were disappointed, but they were sustained by the grace of God. And, you know, it reminds me that sometimes we go through bitter disappointments in our lives, but God wants to sustain us as we go through that disappointment and encourage us and build our faith up. As they came out of that disappointment, their faith had been severely tried, but their faith in God had grown tremendously. Now, let me share with you something that, for me, was probably the most fascinating piece of information that I stumbled across in my study of Revelation chapter 10. And uh, this, this particular thing for me, just it really drove home the fact that you and I are not just part of a denomination, but we are part of a movement of destiny that was prophesied in the pages of Bible prophecy. Mm-hmm. What you find is this you find that oftentimes people will ridicule the Seventh-day Adventist church because, unfortunately, they have a misunderstanding and they believe that the Adventist church was the one that made this prediction that Jesus would come back in the year 1844. And because the Adventist church which didn't organize until the 1860s, so they have a misunderstanding of history. But because this is their reasoning, because the Adventist church made this prediction that Jesus was going to come back in the year 1844 and he didn't return, there is no way that the Adventist church could be God's remnant people. Now, let me share with you something that I find very interesting in the Bible. There are, we see this great disappointment that happened in Revelation chapter 10, but there's another disappointment that happened prior to Revelation chapter 10, which I call the first great disappointment, happened back in the time of the Gospels. There was joy and happiness in seeing Jesus ride into Jerusalem. How many remember that story of the triumphal entry? Remember that story? Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. He's riding on a donkey in there. You know, well, let's just read it from the Bible. It's right here in uh, Matthew chapter 21 and verse 9. It says, And the multitude that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Were they excited? Oh, man, they thought Jesus was going to establish his earthly kingdom. They were so excited seeing him ride in to, to, into Jerusalem on a donkey. And they were waving their palm branches and laying down their cloaks before the donkey. And they thought, this is it. He's going to set up his earthly kingdom. This man who can heal them of their sickness. This man that can feed 5,000 people. This man who stood up in the midst of the storm and said, peace be still. And the winds and the waves had to obey him. This man is going to set up his earthly kingdom. But did they have a misunderstanding of Bible prophecy, yes or no? So obviously when Jesus did not set up his earthly kingdom, there was a disappointment when they saw Jesus die 
on the cross. And here it is, Luke chapter 24, verse 21, on the road to Emmaus, they said, But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And besides all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Were they disappointed when Jesus died on the cross? I mean, the Bible talks about how the disciples were scattered like sheep without a shepherd. There was a disappointment that fell over the people of uh, the, the followers of Jesus as they realized that he's not going to set up his earthly kingdom. That there he is hanging on the cross by a Roman, uh, uh, Roman generals, a Roman army that have nailed him there. And now he's in the tomb. He's dead. And there's not going to be an earthly kingdom. They were bitterly disappointed as they were walking on the road to Emmaus. But little did they know who it was that was standing right next to them, talking to them. And after this bitter disappointment, Jesus has to correct their misunderstanding of Bible prophecy. Listen to this. Uh, just going down to the next verse, verse 27, it says, And he began at Moses and all the prophets and expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things, what? Concerning himself. So what did Jesus do? He gave them a Bible study, didn't he? Went through Moses and all the prophets, and he shared with them many of the prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of one man. In fact, there's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the life of one man, Jesus Christ, which is, an, which is a miracle when you really think about it. And so he begins, he gives them a Bible study. He corrects their misunderstanding of Bible prophecy, that he didn't come to set up an earthly kingdom, but he came to establish his heavenly kingdom by destroying the hated foe on Calvary's cross. So he gives them a Bible study. He corrects their misunderstanding here. And then we find the next thing that takes place is that these disappointed disciples that now have a new understanding are told to preach this new understanding of who Jesus is. And find that great gospel commission in Matthew chapter 28. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy and uh, Father, in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded unto you. And lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the world. Amen. So after Jesus corrects them of their misunderstanding, gives them the new information based on Moses and the prophets, he then tells them, go forth and proclaim the gospel to all the world. So we find them now preaching with a new understanding. Then the next thing that takes place is Jesus begins his ministry in the holy place uh, in heaven. We find that in Hebrews here. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, Neither by the blood of goats and of calves, but by his own blood he entered once into the what? Holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Find it also in Hebrews chapter 9, and verse 24, For Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are a figure of the true, but in the heavens itself, now to appear in the presence of God for who? For us. So as Jesus moves from the earth to this new position, this new role as our heavenly high priest, there is a disappointment that happens with God's people as he transitions from his earthly ministry to his heavenly ministry. God, Jesus, corrects them of this misunderstanding and then tells them to go forth and proclaim with a new knowledge of who Jesus was. And out of this misunderstanding, what happened? The New Testament church was what? So listen to me carefully, friends. If you are going to disqualify, and I'm not saying that you are, but if somebody is going to disqualify, try to disqualify the Seventh-day Adventist church, that they couldn't be the remnant church because they had had this great disappointment that happened in the year 1844, you would have to do the same thing to the New Testament church. Why? Because they also went through a bitter disappointment. Are we all together? 
All right, so we find the first great disappointment that happened back in the time of the uh, Gospels with the disciples, and we find that that disappointment happened because of their misunderstanding of Bible prophecy, their misunderstanding of what Jesus' role was here on this earth, not to set up an earthly kingdom, but to establish his heavenly kingdom. And the same thing happens here in Revelation chapter 10 with the second great disappointment. We find joy and happiness in the preaching from the little book. Again, in Revelation 10 and verse 10, and I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it made my mouth what? Sweet as honey. So it was a great, joyful experience. We read some of the quotes from some of those people back at that time. Great experience. They were so excited as they talked about the second coming of Jesus in 1844. Then obviously there was a deep disappointment when Jesus did not return. Again in Revelation 10 and verse 10. And as soon as I had eaten it, it made my belly what? Bitter. Now, again, they had this bitter experience largely because, again, they had a misunderstanding of Bible prophecy that Jesus wasn't going to cleanse the earth, but he was going to begin to cleanse the heavenly sanctuary. Uh, there in Hebrews chapter 9, uh, Paul talks about that cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary that would take place. So uh, how did those people from many different denominations, how did they respond when Christ did not return as they expected? Well, there was a variety of responses that took place. Some gave up on religion completely. Others set new dates for the advent of Christ, set new uh, dates for when Jesus would come back. Most churches gave up on studying Bible prophecy. Uh, and then there was a small number who began to search their Bibles because they worked off of this premise that God is never wrong. How many of you think that's a good premise? to work off of. Yeah, they made their own. They, 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 they understood that Jesus didn't come back in 1844, not because of something that he did, but because of their misunderstanding of something in Scripture. And so there was a small group that said, hang on a second, God is never wrong, so I'm going to go back to the study of Scripture and find out where I made my mistake. So we go on and we look at the next point here. The study of Scripture revealed their mistake that took place, just like the study of Scripture revealed the mistake in the time of the Gospels when Jesus expounded unto them from uh, Moses and the, and the prophets. So their study of Scripture revealed their mistake. And this is where we find it. The very next day, Hiram Edson says this, My mind is carried to the 10th and 11th chapters of Revelation, where John was told to take a little book from the angel's hand and to eat it. It tasted like honey in his mouth, but when he had eaten it, it was as bitter as gall. That is our experience, brother. Was it not sweet to believe that Jesus was coming yesterday, but now it is bitter, very bitter. The sanctuary I saw is in heaven, and Jesus entered yesterday upon his work of what? cleansing it. So now they have this new understanding. Jesus didn't come to cleanse this earth, but he came to cleanse the heavenly sanctuary. He began that work in the most holy place that began to take place in the year 1844, which is our uh, next point here. Those disappointed people are now told to prophesy again with new understanding. Revelation chapter 10 and verse 11, and he said unto me, thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. You find the same thing in Revelation chapter 14, that that gospel is to go to all nations, kindred, tongues, and people. So we find this prophesying again is of the three angels' messages that we find in Revelation chapter 14. <clears throat> 
The next point that we find in our list here, Jesus begins his ministry in the most holy place, just like he did moving from the earthly to the heavenly sanctuary. Now in 1844, he moves from the holy place into the most holy place and begins his work of cleansing. Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, And he said unto me, In the 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. That is the sanctuary in heaven. And here we find that taking place in Hebrews 9 and verse 23. It was therefore necessary that the pattern of the things in the heavens should be what? Purified, the Bible says, with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. What was that better sacrifice? It's the precious blood of Jesus. That's right. That was the better sacrifice that purified. So here's what we find out. In the holy place, we find that Jesus was in doing the work in the holy place from the time of his ascension to the year 1844. So he's there working, uh, doing this high priestly work in the most holy place. Then, or sorry, in the holy place. Then in the most holy place, we find from 1844 to, if you want to be accurate, it'd be to the close of probation, not to the second coming. Jesus is there working uh, in the most holy place, cleansing that sanctuary, doing again that work of the high priest. And here's the interesting thing that I find. And I tell people this in my Bible Prophecy Seminar. This is down at the last week of our meetings. We've studied a lot of Revelation. And I tell them this. The Seventh-day Adventist church is the only church that knows what Jesus is doing. If you ask most Christians, what is Jesus doing? They'll say, Jesus is preparing mansions. But that's not what the Bible tells us. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. Amen? So he, he's, not, he's not up there making mansions for us. Uh, he's up there preparing a place for us in terms of cleansing our lives of sin so that we can stand before a holy God without sin in our lives. Amen? Amen. So the Adventist church, the Adventist church is the only church that knows what Jesus was doing from the time of his ascension to the time when he comes back to take us home. And that's what makes you and I as Adventists distinctly different than other Christians in the world today. And that's something that we should be proud of. So Jesus is there doing that high priestly work in the most holy place. And then we find that out of this disappointment that took place in Revelation chapter 10, the Seventh-day Adventist church, the Seventh-day Adventist movement was born out of that disappointment that happened in the year 1844. Just like the New Testament church was born out of that disappointment, so in the end of the 2,300 days, God's movement of destiny rose up out of that disappointment uh, with their faith strengthened in Jesus, leading them into a worldwide movement. So again, in Revelation, we find Revelation's description of God's people in the last days. Revelation 14, we find their message. Revelation 12, we find their characteristics. And we just looked at Revelation chapter 10, which is their historical experience, what they went through. So here's what we find out. In 34 AD, there was a great disappointment. In 1844, there was a great disappointment. But out of the disappointment in 34 AD, there was the movement called the New Testament Church that came out of that disappointment when Jesus died on the cross. In 1844, when that great disappointment took place, there was another movement that was born out of that, which was none other than the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Would you say amen to that? So, friends, when you look at Revelation chapter 10, for me, this is a very compelling chapter that shows me that what our church has gone through, what the founders of our church went through prior to the organizing of this church in 1860, what the founders of our church went through in that experience of that bitter disappointment was prophesied to take place 
thousands of years before it actually did. You know, I tell people that I am a Seventh-day Adventist, not because I get my paycheck from them, not because my mother is an Adventist or I was raised in the church or because I think it's a popular thing to do, but I am a Seventh-day Adventist because the Seventh-day Adventist church is the only church that I can pick up the Bible and show people there is the Seventh-day Adventist church right there in Bible prophecy. That's the only reason why. The only reason why I'm part of this movement is because this movement of people are based on the book. They're based off of Bible prophecy. They're the only church that has the message of Revelation chapter 14. They are the only church that have the characteristics of Revelation chapter 12. And they are the only church that have the experience of Revelation chapter 10. And that is the only reason why I'm a part of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Amen. Amen? Amen? And friends, this evening, this is something that we should be proud about. That we are a movement of destiny, if I might may use uh, that phrase that has, is so well known in our church. That we are people of the book that are based off of Bible prophecy. And friends, if God led his people through that bitter disappointment that happened in 1844, he will continue to lead them until he comes back to take us home. Just hold on a little while longer, friends. It won't be much longer. Jesus will be coming very, very soon to take his people home from this earth into the heavenly kingdom where we will reign with him forever and ever one day. So why don't we close our study this evening and we'll also close the Sabbath as well with a word of prayer. And I'm going to invite you again to bow your heads as we pray together tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, Bible prophecy and what it has revealed to each and every one of us. And Lord, may our hearts burn with enthusiasm to know that we truly are a people of the book, that we are a movement of destiny that was prophesied to take place in the book of Revelation. Lord, thank you for the beautiful Sabbath day that you have given to us and the time of rest and blessings that came. And Father, may you aid us now as we go through our next week, as we do our various activities. May the strength and blessings that we have received this Sabbath day keep us as we go through our next week of work. Bless us now, Lord, I pray. In the merciful and loving name of Jesus, I ask. Amen.